0: Good morning everybody, this is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPayley.com as well as St. Owens Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Doing a little bit of a back-to-back as we're sitting here with spring training and Major League Baseball about to start. Um, you think of the workloads of the players that are there. Uh, they're going to start out by going pretty slow and eventually they get themselves into more of a game type of shape. Uh, relief pitchers as they start pitching in games, they'll pitch in a game here and there, have a couple of days off, and as we get close to the end of spring training, they end up pitching back-to-back and maybe three games in a row just to kind of get themselves ready for the regular season. The reason of this back-to-back of the PBS today is a little bit of an overflow from the show that we did yesterday. And we had a chance to talk about a couple things like Jake DeGrom, um, Manny Machado some suggestions in regards to uh, a potential change in the NBA, and the structure of its All-Star game, and finally a little bit of a cap, a final, maybe a conclusion, of the Colin Kaepernick saga. And there was a couple things that I did want to bring up yesterday, and I didn't get a chance to, and I just thought to mention it in passing wouldn't be fair enough. And we think of the impact of some people... In the lives of a particular sport, but most importantly, the impact that a person could have on a couple people is it, it, something that needs a little more time to divulge into. It needs a little more time to make you know, specific points about. And of course, if you heard at the beginning of the week, um, very solid, and I'll talk about it a little bit, potential Hall of Fame pitcher Don Newcomb passed away at the age of 92. And to just mention it in passing like it was part of an update or to mention in passing as if it was just something that, hey, there's a blast from the past, he's no longer with us, I don't think would, would have been fair enough to discuss exactly how much Don Newcomb impacted baseball. And if you remember, President Obama, a handful of years ago, was talking about how his opportunity to potentially be the president of the United States had a lot to do not just with Jackie Robinson, but with Don Newcomb. And Don Newcomb, as it comes to the civil rights movement and what it really meant for baseball, but most importantly for the country going forward, doesn't get mentioned and given the proper credit that he deserves. This was a this was a man who was a very good pitcher, pitched for the Newark Eagles in 1950, 44, uh, was it 44 and 45, was signed shortly after. Jackie Robinson was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers. And obviously Jackie's going to get all the credit that he deserves. You know, Hall of Famer in his own right, a Hall of Fame person for him being able to endear, you know, the unjust racism and taunts and stuff that he had to deal with over the course of his career. Not just from his opponents and fans, but from his own teammates and people that were supposed to be along... His side, you know, the Kirby Higby's and the uh, Dixie Walkers of the world, were supposed to support and respect their teammate, and they chose not to do that. So Jackie obviously had that to deal with, but Don Newcomb being a pitcher and kind of going under the radar in 1946, pitching in a lower form of the minor leagues when it came to the Brooklyn Dodgers, ends up coming up in a, you know the 1949 season after pitching in Brooklyn ends up winning the Rookie of the Year later on wins the Cy Young and the MVP his best years were 1955 when the Dodgers won the World Series for the first time and then in 1956 when he went out there and won 27 games he, he was a dominant pitcher but also lost two years because of mandatory service that he needed to go into the military during the Korean War so he put that all together plus his impact on a game of major league baseball and I don't think he's getting the proper credit that he deserves in regards to baseball's Hall of Fame. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate because we talk about the Hall of Fame in baseball and I'm not going to turn this into a trashing session of the baseball Hall of Fame. I've done that on many of my shows already, but the reality is is that you know, we think about certain players that are excluded from the Hall of Fame and for the different reasons why they are excluded. Now, Don Newcomb may not have won you over in regards to stats. He may not have been a 200- to 300-game winner. He won a couple, you know, 20 games. He was the first African-American pitcher to win 20 games. He was the first African-American pitcher to win the Rookie of the Year to Cy Young and the MVP. He he had a, a huge impact. And you look back at some of the other players that ended up going into Baseball's Hall of Fame in the 1970s, it's a shame that Don Newcomb, he almost gets left out because according to the view, he got the opportunity to pitch in the major leagues for his entire career. And that's not necessarily true. He came up as a 17, 18-year-old pitching in the Negro Leagues for the Newark Eagles. And... Had segregation kind of gone its way and baseball was integrated at that point, he could have been up pitching in the minors and may have been able to make his major league debut as early as 1946 or 1947. He'd throw in the Korean War where he lost the two years because of his service for the country, and he talked about some very valuable time that he lost that he could have been in the major leagues. So when we look at Don Newcomb's numbers, you know, it, it looks like, if you're, look, if you're looking at the eye test, 149 wins, 623 winning percentage, which is solid. And a lot of people will say, hey, he didn't pitch long enough. He didn't dominate enough. He had the 220 or the 321 seasons, but over the course of his entire body of work, didn't pitch well into his 30s. And if you know a little bit about Don Newcomb, you know about the alcoholism that he had to deal with. He ended up having a turning point in the late 60s, which was after his playing career had ended. So he probably had an impact in his own career being shortened. But if you look at it and you say, hey, maybe he could have pitched a couple years at age 20, 21, and 22 in the major leagues if there was no segregation, if baseball was integrated. The two years he lost because of the military service in the Korean War in 1952 and 1953, and maybe, and obviously this is the part that gets blamed on Don Newcomb, and Don, if he was here, he would he would stand up because he's made statements similar to this before. You know, he need, he he should have been better in regards to his abuse of alcohol, which ended up ending his career shortly. Certainly impacted his personal life for a handful of seasons, but he became a very strong advocate, and down the road ended up helping the likes of Amore Wills and some others who were experiencing similar alcohol issues, but you know, Don Newcomb, you look at his career, and I'm telling you, this is a guy that I think of along the likes of a Koufax and a Drysdale. Drysdale, out of the three pitchers, ended up pitching the longest and was probably the most short Hall of Famer. Now, you could say, Hey, Sandy Koufax is dominant as he was over the five year stretch of his career, which I tweeted out yesterday as a reminder. You know, not like I haven't tweeted stuff like that out before, and it's common knowledge. We know that Sandy Koufax, over a five-year period, probably had the best run of any pitcher in Major League Baseball history. That by itself, and the fact that his career ended, you know, too early, got him in Major League, you know, in Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. Don Newcomb falls a little bit short because a lot of people view him as not pitching long enough, and I think this is a guy that. You know, Once you think of his impact on the game of baseball and what was lost in a time that he could have probably pitched, but hit to, to go out there and win 20 games, something that had not been done by a black pitcher before, only the third or fourth black pitcher in Major League Baseball history, a Cy Young Award winner, an MVP, and a Rookie of the Year, and a World Series champion. So I, I do look at this guy as a baseball Hall of Famer. Um, another person that we ended up losing yesterday was a person that had a little bit of a personal impact for for me. A person that I knew pretty well. Not I mean I'm not gonna say I knew him ridiculously well, but longtime actor, talk show host, and comedian Vinny Vella passed away at the age of 72 or 71, I think. No no 72. And uh, Vinny was nice enough to have me and my buddy Carlucci be guests on his show, you know, years ago. And, uh, you know, a man that certainly had a very long career where he did a bunch of different things from acting to, you know, going up on stage, doing stand-up. And then he hosted his own talk show. And his own talk show was something that was so set up for him and, and, and basically exemplified the personality that he had you know, a group of many women that were sitting there with him, beautiful women. And they're, they're talking about different topics and Vinny throws his one-liners as he was very well known for as a comedian. And it worked perfect. Probably a show that if you look back on it, probably couldn't have been hosted successfully by anybody else. And if you put anybody else in his chair, there was nobody that was able to share that charm and just kind of fit in perfectly with the one-liners and the people that were in there as guests of of his show. And I was lucky enough, and, you know, Greg Carlitsch, will say the same thing, you know, fortunate enough to be a guest on his show. And one that we look back on and you say that this was a show that probably could have gotten a little more attention nationally. Uh, This was a guy that was obviously born and raised in New York, had a very long career as an actor and as a comedian and you know we're gonna miss him and you know I think of you know even even showing up and having the opportunity to see him uh, on, on one of his stand-up nights you know he, this is this was a guy that was was you know may not have looked been looked at as the most talented guy he wasn't a, a guy that would go at it and have a whole script to say bam 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 these are all the jokes this is everything I'm gonna say he kind of had that laid back mentality, reminds me of a little bit about about myself to kind of be quiet and not necessarily stressful unless there's a point that I want to insinuate. And Vinny, in his own way, was kind of, you know, mellow, but then cracked that little joke or that little one-liner that would kind of get you, you know, excited, kind of get you fired up and, and say, hey, this guy, he, he really is funny. He's not going to be loud and boisterous and flamboyant, but he really is fun. And obviously, you look at the history of the different movies that he was in. He was in Casino. He was in Analyze That. I remember that little scene in Analyze That at the end where he's one of the actors. when They're, have, they're, they're running the set, and then the, you know, the heist is going on. The police are there. And the police mistake the people that are acting as people that were part of the heist. And Vinny Vela's character has the little blood thing on his, on his shirt that ends up exploding. And, you know, it's just, it's just part of the humor of the movie. But obviously, you know, a, a, a dozens of movies that he was involved in. Um, he was, you know, he was married for a very long time. And, you know, a person that, if, if you think of it, his status as a celebrity Probably could have made him to a point where he would have been unapproachable. And this is a man that if you saw in the streets, he'd give you the time of day like he was a regular person just like you. But a person that was extremely successful, was involved in many many movies, and you looked at his face, you knew who he was. So Vinny Vela passing away at the age of 72, obviously not sports-related, but somebody that I've really got a chance to know, and I think it was worthy of, of having that mentioned on the show today. Uh, this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for the entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent. Of the past, ball show, JohnPietella.com and JohnPietella LLC is prohibited. Any commercial other use of programs, such as by charging admission for a showing, is similarly prohibited. So, going back to Sunday, you had a Daytona 500, and, and if you look back in the way it was, it was a pretty well-run race, and probably stayed out of being, uh, you know, kind of marred by a crash until there was about 10 laps to go. And the unfortunate crash that ends up wiping out just about the majority of the field. And I thought like the one thing that I thought about as, as I'm watching this race unfold and watching this accident happen, I'm thinking of Talladega Nights where, you know, the, the two drivers, obviously Ricky Bobby and John Girard, are, you know, trying to get to the front to end up, you know, making contact with each other and the, you know, the, the Accident ends up wiping out the entire field, and it's just the two of them, and their cars end up you know crashing by themselves, and it's just the two of them running down the end of the track. You don't want a race like that, especially as popular and as attention-driven as the Daytona 500, to be marred by an accident like that, and it's unfortunate, but obviously benefited the handful of drivers that were still around after the wrecks were over, and Denny Hamlin ends up winning his second Daytona 500. Kyle Busch finished second, Eric Jones and Joey Logano. So you look at the, obviously, the other big-time racers, you know, the Jimmy Johnsons, the Martin Truexes, you know, unfortunately didn't get to finish because of the major accident. And, you know, it just kind of makes you think. And obviously the, the NASCAR fans that you know, are as passionate day in and day out and look at the Daytona 500 as the beginning of the NASCAR racing season, you know, will, you know, unfortunately not get a, you know, will not appreciate as much a a race that ends up being marred by an accident. But obviously you look at the competition that was involved there, you know, it, it it was exciting up to that point. And then you have only a handful of drivers that are still left. But what are you going to do? It's not like the you know it's not like NASCAR drivers got backup cars. You know it's not like you got a, a another car that you can just throw out there once you wreck your car, which by the way may not be such a terrible idea. You know the amount of millions of dollars that are involved, in, you know, with racing teams and stuff like that, why would you not have a backup car that was ready that you could just roll out on the track if you end up crashing your car. I mean, I think that would add a little more excitement and like I said, you know, the excitement level is something that can't be increased anymore for the NASCAR fan. The NASCAR fan is as passionate as any football fan or any baseball fan or any fan of any other sport. Probably in some cases is more passionate. Like I said, I'm driving down the road on Sunday and I see banners that are put up in people's houses as they're getting ready for the beginning of NASCAR season. And and these are fans that are probably, you know, I think their passion can be compared to that of Fans of world soccer, and I think they're just as passionate and die hard a- as they would be. But moving on, wanted to throw this out there that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beechwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find in no beer at any cost. So, as we're hitting the last part or the last segment of the show today. Um, just a reminder, Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Iwish's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Um, found an interesting article the other day. It was kind of breaking down some of the best baseball players in the history of the sport. And you think of, obviously, when it comes to the offensive position players, that there's going to be a separation between that and those that pitched. And you understand that. I mean, you can't say, hey, a pitcher was better than a batter, a batter was better than a pitcher. This is my one argument that I have against, you know, wins above replacement. People want to say that it's easy to do to, to differentiate between the impact of a hitter against the impact of a pitcher. But the game's changed so much. You're going to tell me that a relief pitcher could possibly be better than a position player that's playing all nine innings? And we understand that as, as it applies to starting pitchers, starting pitchers aren't going as deep in the games anymore. So that, that's a big deal. The fact that a starter isn't going nine innings, so I don't think it's fair enough to compare that to an everyday player that is playing all nine innings. Now you understand the impact of the pitcher while they're in there. They could do so much to impact the game, they could prevent runs, they could shut the opposition down. And then that offensive player may get their four or five at-bats. That's their only chance to do that. But they could impact the game in the field. They could impact the game on the bases. So that's why, you know, you look at stats like, you know, weighted on base percentage, weighted runs created, wins above replacement. They're all set up to use all the attributes of a player and their impact on the entire game, not just their ability to go out there and hit home runs or hit for averages or, you know, drive in runs so uh, the greatest versus the best argument i'm not in love with it i don't think it i don't think it's something that has a ton of weight to it but you know charlie leishman who wrote a book about ty cobb not that long ago brought it up and it was brought up in another argument um in another article that was kind of separating to say that hey babe ruth if babe ruth was playing right now would he be able to dominate the game the way he did in the nineteen twenties. Would Babe Ruth be so much better than the talented ball players that are going out there hitting home runs in 2019 or you know 2018 going into 2019? And I think it's a fair enough argument because Babe Ruth as an offensive player was probably so much better than any of the other players that were on the diamond. His you know, you know, he had more home runs than entire teams. The 60 home runs he hit in 1927, at the time, according to historians, what was viewed as something unfathomable, something that only a giant, a men among boys, would be able to do, that Babe Ruth in that time was viewed as a player that, from his physical skill set, you know, his God-given strength that he had, was was this this unbelievable giant that was just so superior to anything that the game had ever seen before. And the thought at the time, and we're talking about 1927, and the minds that were there and the people that were following the game of baseball, was that this was a once-in-a-lifetime type of player. And it obviously was for that generation because there, the game, and there had not, up to that point, had been developed a player that could do what Babe Ruth could do. Eventually, you know, you'd see bigger, stronger, more athletic players. Certainly, players that could hit the ball a long way. Obviously, in the the days of integration, you know, Babe Ruth at some point was compared, especially in the latter part of his career, to the likes of a Josh Gibson, who really has to be considered when you're thinking about the best baseball players of all time. Because it's not fair to ignore you know Negro leagues baseball because America was too stupid to understand that all people were created equal and people should not be judged based off of the color of their skin now we understand that now obviously there's exceptions where people will say stupid things or people will you know use racism and discrimination against people that shouldn't have been shouldn't be done it's not that we're past that but we are as a society in a lot better position to understand the fact that everybody is created equal and when it comes to the world of sports and going back to what I was saying before how baseball was able to pave the way for integration and led to the civil rights movements and you know listen if you want you have every right to not be happy where we are as a society and that's fine if you feel that way but we are a lot better in 2018 going into 2019 than we were in the 1940s and certainly we were and at the time that Babe Ruth played but Babe Ruth Obviously, the superiority that he had to every player that had played uh, up to that point really almost made it unfair. He was able to dominate, he was able to do different things that really had not been done before. So can Babe Ruth, if we transplanted him 100 years later, or almost 100 years later to the time that we're sitting in right now, hoping that, that this person could compete at the level? of, let's say, a Nolan Arenado or a Mike Trout. Now, obviously, you're talking about enhancements in equipment, which is something that's different, right? Because, you know, fielders made so many errors just because, you know, you know they, their field conditions were bad. Gloves were not made in a way that, that, they, that they're conducive to being able to catch a ball. certainly not up to the level that they're made right now. Catchers, you know, had very weak equipment up to a certain point until the days of silver flint did not have any sort of equipment whatsoever or even a face mask. So it it was very advantageous to the hitters. You know, you could hit a ball on the ground, and there was a chance it could hit a rock and kind of spew itself somewhere else and you'd be able to reach base. That's why the value was put so much into making sure that you make contact, as opposed to striking out, which we know in baseball nobody cares about striking out. They're trying to hit a home run up through the last pitch and will sacrifice 190 to 200 strikeouts every single season just for the thought that they might hit a couple more home runs. Obviously, their batting average goes down because of it. But if you're thinking at the time of baseball as it was being played at that moment, you you understood that there was a value of Understand, if you have two strikes, you're going to make sure that you put the ball in play. And if you put the ball in play, there's a chance something good could happen. And I do think baseball, as it's, uh, it's cyclical, it really is. It kind of works in circles. Things that have worked in history of baseball end up being brought up again. And, you know, you say, hey, how come there hasn't been as much focus on this? How come there hasn't been as much uh, understanding of, of, you know, why you wouldn't want to strike out you know, two hundred times in a season. So I could see baseball changing and as it's moving on to going back to ways that it was in the past. But the point that I'm making in regards to Babe Ruth could Babe Ruth play today? You have Adam Ottavino, who's the new relief pitcher for the Yankees, just signing himself a nice deal, says that he would have struck out Babe Ruth every single time and he came to the plate. Now. What Adam Adovino probably wasn't factoring in, alright, if they're on a neutral site, in a neutral field, in a neutral time, Babe Ruth at some point is probably going to make some sort of adjustment to Adam Adovino. And if Adam Adovino is throwing something to Babe Ruth that he's never seen before, well, I I bet you if if Adam Adovino is going to have the benefit of all the technology that he has, Babe Ruth is going to have the same technology to his advantage to be able to make the proper adjustments. So we're transplanting Babe Ruth into this generation. Would he be uh, an immortal if he played along the likes of, let's say, a Barry Bonds? Now, Barry Bonds is an immortal type of player, which is why he belongs to Baseball's Hall of Fame. You can talk all day about the fact that he used steroids, but when we're talking about the top five offensive position players in Major League Baseball, and I'm not going to back off of this, there's Babe Ruth there's Ty Cobb, there's Ted Williams, there's Lou Gehrig, and then there's somebody named Barry Bonds. Like I said, you can say Barry Bonds is a jerk. You can say Barry Bonds took steroids from the early part of the 1980s if you want to, which there's no way you can prove that. There's no way you can prove the exact time that Barry Bonds started using. And obviously the Barry apologists will say that he started using steroids as a response to what Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were doing. But the bottom line is, You know, you think of the elite and most dominant players of certain generations, and it's very hard to put them all in the same same build. That's why we talk about a stat like wins above replacement as it was created, and we say that it was the equalizer stat to take players from any generation and put them all in the same pile and be able to differentiate who were the best players of all time. The players who have the highest cumulative war, or wins above replacement, over the course of their career, were the best players to ever play in Major League Baseball history. And it's unfortunately not accurate enough, because there's different factors that no stat could ever generate. There's no way you can talk about how much better Babe Ruth was over his entire competition and everybody that he was playing against. In fact, Babe Ruth didn't find a player that was anywhere near as comparable to him until the likes of Lou Gehrig in what, you know, 1924, 1925. Lou Gehrig comes up, subs for a Wally Pipp who has a, you know, a headache, and ends up going on this ridiculous run himself and they were called the Home Run Twins. Baseball had not had really a dominant home run hitter before, and now they had two. But as the game moves on and you look at the likes of, you know, a Ted Williams and a Frank Robinson and obviously a Willie Mays and a Henry Aaron and a Barry Bonds and an Alex Rodriguez, it makes this whole discussion interesting because what you're comparing them is not necessarily against their peers, Maybe up to a certain extent, you could compare Mays and you could compare Aaron and you could compare others that played at the same exact time, like a Frank Robinson, but it's hard to compare a Frank Robinson to a Ty Cobb. Some may say that they're different players, but if the goal of the game was not to hit the ball over the fence, like was the case in Ty Cobb's era, was the case in the blatant racist Cap Anson's era, then they're not playing necessarily the game the same way. And for those who are listening on Periscope, hopefully we'll be able to share the video through YouTube. Looks like we lost the broadcast. But a little bit of a recap of the show today. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. Obviously, the passing of Don Newcomb. And not just to mention it. you know, Not to mention the guy's age and how old he was. Because I don't think that really speaks to the impact of Don Newcomb's uh, what, what he contributed to baseball and its history, you know, really became the first dominant African-American pitcher and lost time because of segregation, lost time because of the Korean War and the fact that he had to serve. Now, listen, he, you could say he chose to serve, which is fine. I'm not going to hold anything against Don nuka Maybe that was, you know, at the time, I'm sure he said, hey, you know, I'm here to serve my country, just like everybody else that ended up losing time because of it. But, when it comes down to it, you're talking about a guy that won 20 games three times at a time when winning 20 games meant something. Won an MVP in a Cy Young the same season. Was the first Cy Young Award winner. Won the Rookie of the Year in 1949. Won a World Series Championship and probably lost some time. He probably had a short career, which maybe not, would not be fair to compare it to the likes of Sandy Koufax. I don't think you could do that. But, He was as dominant in the prime of his career as Sandy Koufax was. And I think more discussion should be had over whether he deserves a spot in baseball's Hall of Fame. Now, a lot of people listening will jump onto Baseball Reference and want to look up Don Newcomb's stats and will say, well, you know, he didn't win over 200 games, let alone near 300 games. Was he the best pitcher in baseball at the time? You know, obviously when the likes of Koufax and Drysdale start making impacts on the Dodgers, Rotation in their staff. They became the better pitchers. And Don Newcomb, obviously, because of his own alcohol problems that he had, uh, it contributed to the fact that his career did not last that long. But we don't get to where we are right now with African-American and black players being accepted in the game. And the likes of guys like Fergie Jenkins and Vida Blue could look back at Don Newcomb as their Jackie Robinson. As their hero and a person that has that type of impact on the entire game makes their stats not seem as important and I think if we look at the likes of pioneers that have impacted baseball and put it to you know where it is and on the map the way it is you know as we sit here in 2019 you look at a man like Don Newcomb who people like President Barack Obama Feel like they could not or would not have been in the position that they were if it wasn't for Don Newcomb's impact on baseball and what he did for the civil rights movement. Vinny Vela passing away, a person that I got a chance to know a little bit, was lucky enough to be a guest on his show along with Greg Carlucci. And, you know, a, a funny man, but, you know, not, not a guy that went out of his way to try to be funny. He was just naturally funny. He had the humor, he had the one liners. He had obviously a successful show that. I Said before, nobody else could have hosted his show in the way that he did it because there was nobody that uh, you know got that respect out of the people in the room and also was able to use his humor the way that he did it. So his show was successful because of him. You couldn't have a guest host for the Vinny Bella show, and obviously, a man who was very good as a stand up comedian and actor in dozens and dozens of movies. Including Casino, Analyze That, um, Kissing Jessica Stein, uh, amongst a few of the movies that he was involved in. And it's just it's a sad day as you know we mourn the loss of a very good actor and comedian, Vinny Bella. Also got a chance to talk a little bit today about the Daytona Five Hundred, uh, a race that looked like it was going to be good up until about ten laps to go, and then obviously you have the major car wrecks and. the the things that kind of made the last part of the race kind of not as enjoyable to watch. That being said, what would have to happen for racing teams to be able to invest in a backup car? And where would you go in, in regards to NASCAR to approve a team to be able to have a backup car that once one car gets wrecked and the race would naturally or normally be over for that, Racer that they can get into this other car and be able to finish the race. That's something that I'd like to see happen. Talking a little bit about the 20 top players in Major League Baseball history, I told you my top five, and I don't think I'm going to be swayed any way based off any more of the research that I do. It's Babe Ruth, it's Ty Cobb, it's Ted Williams, it's Lou Gehrig, and it's Barry Bonds. And then you look at the likes over the next five would be in some order of Henry Aaron, Stan Musial... Willie Mays, Rogers Hornsby, and Josh Gibson. And I don't think anybody else gets in that area. Now, you talk about, you know, 11 to 20, you have to factor in some of the top Negro League players like Oster Charleston. you got to factor in, you know, Sadahara O, his impact on baseball. You understand that he played a game, a different kind of game in Japan for his entire career, but he dominated it at maybe at a level that like Babe Ruth did here in the United States. So you have to consider him. Obviously, guys like Frank Robinson and Ken Griffey Jr. and Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and Jimmy Fox and Hannes Wagner are, are all players that you're going to think about when you're talking about players 11 through 20. And obviously, we're talking about strictly position players here. More discussion we'll have next week on that topic. And obviously, spring training and Major League Baseball starting. You got NFL with the franchise tags. Did Landon Collins of the Giants decide to clean out his locker and he wasn't coming back? I don't know. There's reports on that. Obviously, players, you know, some players are going to be happy to be franchise tags. Some are, some are not. Free agency is going to start in a little bit. You're you're having some action in regards to some things being announced. The Joe Flacco trade from Baltimore to Denver. Obviously, none of this could be announced officially until the start of the new league season. You got basketball. You got hockey. So, a ton of stuff going on this weekend. So, hope everybody gets a chance to enjoy it. Uh, we'll be back with you sometime early next week. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by johnpaley.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.